Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. Now, before we go inside to hear the sermon, I feel like I need to define something really quick. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. We talk a lot about the gospel, but today we're going to give another definition of this term that we as a church community are all about. The gospel, the good news of grace, is the completed work of Jesus Christ. His life lived perfectly, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. Are his teachings important? Absolutely. Is his example necessary for the believer? Yes, ma'am. But understanding that the gospel, this good news of grace, is the finished work of Jesus is so important to our understanding of the Bible, to our salvation gifted to us in the great news of Jesus, and to our, to our identity that defines us as human beings and what our identity ought to be placed in. I once said at a church, we are saved by works. Pause for effect. We are saved by Jesus's work. Why is that scandalous? Well, almost everyone, as they heard me say, we are saved by works, gasped before I completed the sentence. And as Spencer has said before in sermons, it's not really a sermon unless you quote Ephesians chapter two. So Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through nine, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. A truth that many of us think we believe is that we are not saved by our works, and yet we fall into the trap of thinking that what we do makes us good with God. And I need you to know that none of us, not one of us, not me, not you, not Keith, not the most biblically literate person in our church or the most holy person based on not sinning as often or the most devout and seemingly spiritual person within our church community are saved by what they do or their own work, but only and unequivocally by Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, whose work of a perfect life, his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead is what makes us good with God. We aren't saved by our works. We never were. We never will be. But Jesus's work, the gospel, is what makes you and I innocent before God. Why do I bring this up? Because some of us may misunderstand what we study today. We're going to talk about work. Key the Rihanna song. And in the context of responsibility, in the context of love for God, and instead of work being in its proper place as a response to God's love for us, we may attempt to do what the Pharisees and legalists and fundamentalists and cultists have been doing for centuries. We may think we are Christian because of what we do, because of our work, when we only find salvation in Jesus's work. So are we good there? Does that make sense? Any questions? I'll wait. Because without the gospel, and understanding what it is and what we mean when we say it, we may have a lot of people nodding their heads and going, yeah, I understand. In reality, when we may just be riding pews to hell, or in today's context, our couches. When I say gospel, the good news of Jesus, I don't mean gospel music. Cue Sister Act. Let me hear, let me hear, let me hear sing. Or the first four books of the New Testament which even though they describe the gospel, the gospel message is found in much more than just the first four books, but the entire Bible. And when I say gospel, I don't mean that you're a good person or being moral or that, that you are um, really great or anything like that, because you cannot make yourself better in God's eyes. Only Jesus can do that and believing his gospel. 
So that's my disclaimer before we jump inside for the sermon and the text today. And if that still hasn't clicked for you, feel free to start the sermon over and rewatch what I just said, because this will be the key to the message today. Otherwise, you may hear a message today and your application may be that you have to do something or you have to try harder or you have to be better. And that church is not what the gospel is about. Friend, the gospel is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ and placing our identity solely in his finished work of his life, perfectly lived, his dying on the cross, sacrificially for us, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. The gospel is Jesus superseding us. The gospel is God superimposing his son upon each one of us, his children. The gospel is not about earning. It is about receiving grace, which we didn't deserve But God so loved the world, he gave his only son. All right, we good there? Because I can do this all day. Thank you for joining us as we continue our series called In the Beginning, Jesus. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, and as Daniel began the second chapter of Genesis last week, we will continue by starting in verse 4 today. When this series came to mind, I really wanted to just study the book of Genesis with Jesus in mind. But as the series has been uh, created and as we've been walking through this, God very clearly inspired me and others to focus our vision this year as a church to recalibrate our emphasis of the redemptive plan of God through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And as I say that, I don't really think that we have been very far off of this as a vision in the past many years, but for some of us, we might not feel like much of what we're currently doing is that big a change, and that's okay. But for myself and other servant leaders at COV, we are consistently serving God through attempting to best serve you, the church, and your needs. And we know that we personally as leaders need to have a subtle reminder of keeping the main thing the main thing. Because our work, our effort, and our service can all be in vain if we do it with the motivations that are not centralized on the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to see God creating man, the first man named Adam, and God will entrust him responsibility that he will then be expected to labor through and work. And to remind everyone, and I hope that you take this away today, work was before sin. Work was before the fall. When everything was good, work was there. It was sin that made work less desirable and holy than God originally intended. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's jump into verse 4. Here's what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This verse could have been taught last week, but it is a transitional verse to remind us of all that God has done through the seven days of creation. So what sticks out to you through the first seven days? Are you still stuck wondering if it was seven literal days that God was creating? Was it 24 hours each day? Was it 1,440 minutes per day? Was it 86,400 seconds per day? Who cares? God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun and the stars and the moon and the skies and the mountains and the oceans and the animals and you, mankind. Don't miss the forest for the trees, y'all. God is a good creator who sustained life so we could be in relationship with him. And today we're going to dive deeper into really what the sixth day in particular, where God creates man in his image, which we know is a mago day, we get to zoom in on and see what the Lord did and how it means 
so much for us today. So here's what it says, verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. I love the foreshadowing. It's as if mankind being created was purposeful. As in verse 5 was written, as God did what he did, he knew that there was a need in mind. Things that brought life naturally had yet to make their appearance like rain. But streams, verse 6, came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. God in his creativeness chose to bring water everywhere from the earth rather than from the skies in which is now a natural occurrence once rain became this natural occurrence. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It's interesting to me that God watered the entire ground and then from the dust made man. It's almost it's almost as if we were dust and dirt and muddy. We were created from the ground, but God didn't use the natural way of making us in the beginning. He used the earth, the dust, and we were created. Not only did he create us, but he breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. What does that mean? I have no idea. Other than the breath of life can translate to our soul. And God made Adam not just a vessel for life, but a living being that God formed from the earth while having the power and creativity to breathe life into him. Now we know this isn't how life continued to begin, but this was the miraculous way that God began life with man through his power and through God's creativity. Looking at this through a gospel lens, this alludes to that up until this point in the story, in fact, up until next chapter, there is no conflict. There is only creation, work, goodness, and rest. But to think of the first man, to think of the first Adam, makes me think of the second Adam, who came not when everything was good and without conflict, but came just at the right time to restore and make right what was wrong. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it's said this way, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And we can identify with Adam being the first human being created. And unfortunately, from, from birth, we all identify with Adam's sin. In Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that when it comes to how we live our life, but do we know that even before we start to live our life, as we are conceived, we are born into sin. In Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6, the psalmist says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. We inherited what Adam did. In our natural state, we are sinful, we are without hope. And in order to understand the beauty of the good news, many of us must embrace the reality of the disgusting nature of the bad news. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered 
the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all the people because all sinned. Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how many more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For it, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Almost done, verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but, there, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you need a passage to study and to read and to consistently read this week, I'd encourage you to look at that passage in Romans chapter 5. And the creating of Adam, the first man, reminds us that a better Adam will come to undo what Adam had done. Adam was the first one with a body, but Jesus Christ is the first one to be resurrected. And even though we are all born physically, each one of us need to be born again, not physically, but spiritually. This is what is meant as Jesus speaks with the Pharisee in John chapter three, I call him Nick at night. And Jesus speaks with and talks with Nicodemus And Nicodemus doesn't really understand what Jesus means at first. Look with me, John chapter three, verse one. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh given birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. There was once a time period a few decades ago where many Christians were known as the born-againers. And really what that means is that they didn't find their Christianity in their effort or their personal good works, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that they saw that they were destitute without being born again of the Spirit of God to have the veil that was covering their eyes removed and they could see that this new birth spiritually changed everything for them. They were truly born again, not of the flesh, 
not of water, as Nicodemus asked, but of the Spirit. And this new birth was how they had access to God. This was not by works, so as to give humanity a reason to boast in themselves, but of the Spirit to point to the finished work of Christ. Back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. God had planted this garden. He had set up the Garden of Eden for his most prized creation, mankind, to live in and to work and to subdue it. Man had been placed in this garden. God had created a home for mankind, and it was good. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Up until now, we have experienced God and his creative nature, his creation of the sun and the moon and the stars and the land and the oceans and the animals that are along the ground and in the water and through the sky. God had created mankind in his image, Amago Dei, both male and female, as we have studied through the first seven days of creation. And now as we get to focus more on the creation of man, we are not now told about this tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Both of these trees, considering their importance, seem to be somewhat scarce in the descriptions and the amount of times that they are referenced in Scripture, but they are both included here in many of the Proverbs and in the, and in the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Life is pretty consistently a theme in the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Like, life is talked about throughout the Old Testament, and the New Testament, like a lot, like a lot, a lot. People can view the Bible as a how-to-have-a-good-life book, but it's not about a good life. It's not that in which the Bible points to, as is if the American lens as we read the Bible is what we're looking for, as if a good life is a nice house with a white picket fence and a beautiful or a handsome spouse, 2.5 children, two nice and newer cars, all of that, that American dream is not what this points to. That is temporal. All of that is superficial, except for the beautiful wife. That's a blessing from the Lord. Thanks, God. But the Bible I'd say isn't about how to live a better life, but to experience eternal life, which sure, it is a better life, but it's really more about the eternal everlasting life than the superficial and the temporal. This past week, I had the opportunity to teach at Santa Clara University at a ministry called CORE, which is a Protestant Christian ministry that meets on campus. Well, they did. We, we met on Zoom. And we have had many students be a part of this church, some who have stuck around even after graduating. And we spent our time walking through the parable of the prodigal son, or as I've always liked the name, the parable of the lost sons, plural. What's tremendous about that story in which Jesus tells the Pharisees is that the younger brother, or who is known as the prodigal son, wants, to, wants his share of the family's estate, and he takes it from his father, and he squanders it on wild living. And that's how Jesus points out the beginning of this parable. And once this younger brother comes to his senses, he creates a plan to go back to his father and apologize and to ask for forgiveness in the hopes to be able to at least be his father's hired servant. But what does the father do? He reinstates this younger son 
this younger brother, into the family. He kills the fattened calf so that he and his friends can celebrate. He was looking, the younger brother was looking for a cheap fix. He was looking for the temporal. He was looking for pleasure and it ran out. The money ran out. The excitement ran out and he was broke. He was broken and he was humbled. For us today, Church of the Valley, I know that there is a lot that we wish was different right now. But I also know that in the course of eternity, what we are dealing with is, as James says, but a mist. He says, why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And the tree of life, which is both addressed here in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is not just some tree, but it is assumed to be the tree that represents life everlasting, that causes life to be eternal. God creates this tree here, and I hope I'm not spoiling the book for anyone, but we sin and we get kicked out of Eden. But in the final chapter of the book in Revelation chapter 22, it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So spoiler, the curse is lifted, but that's future. And we're still in the now. And we're studying the before. It's like inception. And the Lord God, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees that grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God makes the garden He makes these trees, both the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which we will see in the future is a tree that God gives his first command about. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Instead of attempting to prove where this is, Iraq is where many people think, or trying to explain in detail all the geography and all that was happening here, I want to point out the intent of the exposition to point out how much actual water there was available in Eden, the place where God decided to have life begin. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God took the man and placed him. It kind of makes me think of like a Simpsons episode where God might pick someone up and put them somewhere. But he set him down, I guess. But I doubt that that's how it happened. But more importantly, why was Adam placed there? He was placed there to work it and to keep it, to take care of it, to be responsible for it, to be entrusted a job and to work the land, which I don't want any of us to miss. Work was before the fall. 
Work was not a result of sin. The detestive work was. The goal of each of us is not to find a way to not have to do anything, but to fill the blessing in being able to work unto the Lord, to take our responsibilities seriously as if we know the Lord knows not only what we do, but why we do it. Being busy or working hard or feeling needed can become an idol. It creates this vain conceit and this vain worship, and we don't know it, but it's worship of oneself rather than the God of the universe. I know that for me in my ministry over many years, I have felt like I am important because of how busy I've been. And honestly, that's kind of like another version of when I was younger, when I wouldn't get attention from my dad, I would just get in trouble so I would get attention. But our work is something that we do because it's redeemed by God. Our work is something we do to glorify God. Look at Colossians chapter three with me. Here's what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, I know slaves can be the first thing we see. It's the first thing that's said in this verse. And it's something that some of us can't get past. But if you can, I want you to actually see what Paul is pointing out and what he's saying to the church in Colossae right here. And if for whatever reason you can't get past that word slave, please, please watch a sermon we did as we unpacked the book of Colossians. We'll have a picture of the sermon on the screen. The sermon was called, He Knows When You Are Sleeping, and it will hopefully help give you a better contextual understanding of slavery, especially in the New Testament. Okay, so, so what does Paul say? Work with sincerity of heart and reverence. For who? For the Lord. Whatever you do, work with all your heart as unto the Lord. This is the redeeming, the work the Lord has entrusted to Adam. God didn't give Adam the garden and Adam, like a little kid, went, Dad, I can't. I don't have time. I can't get up. I want to play my game. I have other stuff I want to do. That's not what happened. Adam, before the fall, before sin entered into the fray, was given a job to do, and Adam went for it. He, like we, ought to, as Paul said, work diligently unto the Lord. Where's the application, you may ask? Well, it might be here, I guess, but not because good work justifies you. It reflects Christ and his submission to the Father. Working unto the Lord while resting and Jesus being our rest is this amazing balance of our character and motivation and the redemptive work of Christ in our lives. Let me say that again, because some of you are going to miss that. Working unto the Lord while resting and Jesus being our rest is this amazing balance of our character and motivation and redemptive work of Christ in our lives. I see work is not something that we ought to dread and that we have to do, but as an opportunity to reflect Christ in our work ethic and our words as we connect with the colleagues and customers that maybe we work around that we would never be able to point to Jesus without the job. But something else I want us to see is that in God's creative order, it is not only that we work and have responsibility before the fall, but work was not intended to do so that we could rest. 
Do you know that most of us work five or six days a week so we can get that one or two days off? And that was not God's design. It's quite the opposite. We rest so we can work diligently upon the Lord and both glorify God and keeping time holy for the Lord to rest. And however you do that, for whatever time or amount of time that you do that, do not get stuck in the details. Don't get religious and make it about how you rest or for how long you rest. Remember that rest is worship to God because Jesus is our rest. And just as our work it can also be worship to our God, did you know that you, when you work diligently, out of the grace that God has supplied you and you trust him in rest, you can work diligently unto the Lord. It all is a worship service to him. It's when we define ourselves by what we do that everything gets out of whack. It's when we think God is lucky to have us because we work so hard for him. That is, our true, that is when our true God is shown and it's ourselves because we're trying to justify ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I know that even though I am positive I've been saved by grace, I still try to pay God back for what he did for me when I work. Not because I love him, but because I want to do things for him because I want to justify myself even though I've been justified. But if we work just so we can rest, we also are then worshiping the wrong thing. We're worshiping a reprieve from effort rather than the God who gave us the breath in our lungs to live. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. All right, I'm going to pause in the middle of the sentence. God's first command to mankind began with his gift of everything, but you can eat from any tree. You can eat any and everything, all the fruit that you see from any tree, but... Verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Any and every tree but one tree. And guess which one they end up eating from? Sorry to ruin it for you, but we'll get to that in just a few weeks. What is it about wanting to do what we're told not to do? Remember restaurants? Remember when we got to go inside and sit down? It was really great. Remember when they'd say, all right, don't touch, hot plate, what do you do? Or at least what do most of us do? Because I can hear some of you rule followers right now. I never touch the plate. Well, I do, so get off me, bro. That's what humanity does. We are told not to do something, and what do we do? We want to do what we shouldn't do. We want to do what we're told not to do. But how good is God that he not only tells them what not to do, but he makes the consequences known. You will surely die. They don't have to guess. They don't have to worry about what may happen if they disobey. Death comes into the world when they choose not to listen to God, when they start to think that God is holding out on them. But even that wasn't enough to stop them, was it? I don't want to get ahead, but sin and sinfulness and our understanding of our sin nature is vital to understanding our need for a savior. Because like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, far too many of us believe that we're not that bad because of comparison to someone we deem that bad. But there's something even worse. We think that the good that we have done justify us. 
God in his perfection, we might never say this out loud, but we act this way, ought to feel lucky to have those of us who have a higher percentage of good deeds than a bad deeds ratio. Get out of here. You and I, we eat the fruit every time. You and I miss the point every time. You and I compare ourselves to someone and and how we think that they're worse than us because you and I become our own judge based on a subjective fondness of ourselves and we want to be better than someone else. I'd go as far to say that the problem isn't just that we don't do what God tells us to do or we uh, do what he tells us not to do, but when we do what he says, we expect him to owe us because of it. That's cosmic treason as well. You have probably all heard me say this before, but I know some of you don't get this because you still say, oh, Tim, pastor, you deserve all these blessings in your life. I have a beautiful family. We're healthy by God's grace. Some of my kids know Jesus Christ already. We have another baby on the way. God has provided in a miraculous way an opportunity for us to live and have a home in Santa Clara. Dude, I do not deserve any of that. Listen, I deserve death because God's standard is perfection. God's standard is without blemish. God's standard is to never fail and to always succeed. And yet spiritually speaking from the heart, which God calls out often, not just about what we do or don't do, but based on how we view ourselves and find our identity and what motivates us, I am the worst of the worst. I am the chief of all sinners because I know my heart. And so stop putting a weight on me that I cannot bear. I am no better than anyone who isn't a pastor or is a pastor. It's not about goodness. It's about Jesus's godness. And I am so grateful that the Spirit of the Lord decided to make known to me that Jesus Christ is King and I am his servant. But even better than that, God in his grace through his son, Jesus, calls me his son because of big brother Jesus and what he's done for me. So our work, church, should never define us because Jesus's work, his gospel, has to be what defines us. So what do you do with this today, church? Last week, I thought Daniel did an amazing job of teaching who our rest really is, and it's Jesus Christ. But I'm learning more and more each week as we teach, as we do takeaways, as we have community groups and attempt to spur one another on towards Christ and his gospel, that it's not just what we say as teachers, it's what you hear. So again, I want to point back to the disclaimer at the beginning. We are only saved. We are only justified. We are only made righteous. We are only Christians based on what Jesus has done. What he has done, what he does, what he has accomplished, what he has afforded, we are without the ability to save ourselves. So I am grateful for an eternal lifeguard in Jesus Christ, who while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and was raised to life for our justification. May you this week, Church of the Valley, identify yourself with Jesus's work, not your own, And may others wonder why you are different. And would the Lord give you the words to speak of his goodness in his gospel to those around you? Just want to point out two things as we conclude. 
We do takeaway calls at 11.30 every week, and it is a sweet opportunity for us to be able to kind of share what stuck out to us. And to be honest, as I call on people, a lot of people have the same takeaway, but you know what? Repetition helps. And it has been so great to see the faithful be a part of that call. And if you haven't been on the call in a while, join us this week. It's just a sweet time. We have a bunch of new people that have started to attend the church, a few new families that have started to connect on the takeaway calls. We would love for you to meet them. We'd love to see you. We'd love to know how you're doing and how God's spurring you on towards good works, which he predetermined that you would walk in. And then the other thing is offering. We do an offering because it is an act of worship to God because we know that what we have was given to us by him. And so I know what it's like to feel like the month is running out and you don't have enough money and all of these things, and then you feel guilt to wanna give. That's not what we're talking about here. We're saying if Church of the Valley is the church where you are growing, where the gospel is preached and you are hearing it and you feel part of this community, you give based on the percentage that you and God have decided that you ought to give because it is an act of worship. And I hope that you would do that, not because you want to keep the lights on here on the church campus or keep the people on staff employed or that you would justify yourself by what you give, but that you would do it because it is worship to your God. And it is a reminder that your money does not have your heart. So I'm going to pray for us. And I hope, as I said a bunch of words in the past many minutes, that God would use his word and would use this message to glorify himself and to reach people and to grow us to look more like Jesus. So would you pray with me? (sighs) Father, that was a lot. And it probably felt a bit like a fire hose. And ah, we have a few more messages in the next coming weeks that are going to be similar because there's just so much to unpack when it comes to man and woman and the fall. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear. He who has ears, let him hear, you say. And so, God, I pray that we would have the ears to hear what you are teaching us, what is true in your word, that we would not interpret things based on our own wants, but we would hear your word and your spirit would lead us. And the teaching of your word would help us understand more of who you are and how beautiful you are. I pray that you would use the offering to make disciples of all nations and generations, that more men and women and children would fall deeply in love with you because of the way that people give and the way that we steward those gifts to make much of you, Jesus. And I pray that the takeaway call this week would be an affirmation of the work you're doing in each of us and that we would be full of gospel and truth and of grace, God. So thank you for this time. Thank you for what you're doing within our community. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.